Hello, everyone. I'm Alex Helms of Troon Brewing, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest today is James Priest of The Referend, and he is here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers alike. First, I'll ask everyone to please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at allaboutbeer. And furthermore, to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first, this message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Osmanthus Flowers. Osmanthus radiates fresh floral spring like no other flower. Add Osmanthus to Lambics, Lagers, Pilsners, Whitbeers, or other Belgian styles. First Tea is your source for Osmanthus and teas that fit the unique flavor profiles you're looking for. Email info at firsttea.com, that's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A, to discover the perfect teas and botanicals for your next project. For more than a decade, the Beer Law Center has been dedicated to the craft beverage industry, meeting the legal needs of breweries, wineries, distilleries, and all manner of alcohol producers and sellers around the country. From company formation to federal and state licensing, trademarks, regulations, and compliance, or if you're buying or selling an alcohol business, the Beer Law Center should be your first call. The firm never charges for an initial consultation, and if they can't help you, they'll help you find someone that can. Have a legal question? Contact the Beer Law Center on social media at Beer Law Center and online at beerlawcenter.com. Ironheart Canning is the quality leader in mobile canning and much more. With a decade of packaging experience, Ironheart is your turnkey solution for all your canning needs. Ironheart has no minimums on their mobile service, great supply chain quality control like no other, as well as technical support programs. Need canning materials? Ironheart has you covered with cans by the pallet or the trailer load, Pactex case trays, and can ends as well. Ironheart Canning. You have the capability because Ironheart can do it for you. Visit them at ironheartcanning.com or email info at ironheartcanning.com. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, MMC's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCo.com to learn how Malt Europe can support your malting needs. Or you can contact them at customer success at MaltEurope.com or call 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. Malt Europe, premium grains from field to flavor. Let's get into it. So a little bit about my guest today, James Priest. In 2015, after working in the cellars of breweries and wineries, and in the front of house of beer bars and wine bars, James Priest conceived of an all-spontaneous blendery utilizing a mobile cool ship and fixed barrel cellar in rural New Jersey. The project, called Referent Beer Blendery, opened in 2016 and has specialized in exclusively spontaneously fermented beers since then. James has since transitioned the blendery to its new, permanent home a Pennsylvania farm brewery with its cool ship nestled into an organic vineyard and its barrel cellar built into the earth. James, pleasure to have you here tonight. Thanks for having me, Alex. How uh, how do I find you this evening? Oh, uh, pretty good. You know, pretty well snowed in. Um, and just, uh, yeah, uh, opened a beer because we were doing this. Excellent. That's but nice. having a good time. 
Well, uh, so just for to expand on the backstory a little bit, you yes. opened the reference in 2016, a month apart from when we opened Troon in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Was it uh, even a month? I thought it was like... It might not. Or maybe a week? I, mean, I think it was like two weeks. I think it was like two weeks off or something. So, but yeah, I mean, very we, so in the the beginning, when we met, we had so much uh, alike. We had so many of the same difficulties, trials, tribulations, getting licensing, working oh, with nice. the uh, befuddling, to say the least, New Jersey State Legislature, the yes. ABC enforcement arm. Uh, so we go way back. And so that's why I was so happy to have you on tonight, because obviously we had very different visions for our breweries, despite being 15 minutes apart. And yeah. uh, I, I'm so proud of what you've built and i think it's uh, one of the most Likewise. unique and singular breweries in the entire country if not the world and i think uh my intention tonight was to give you the pedestal and hopefully expose the people who might not have heard of the referend if there are such people i doubt it oh they exist they uh, are there yeah. some people I mean, have they, not they, had they, your come beer. By, they come by every week and they're yeah <laughs> they're as bewildered as they've ever been and it's it's kind of delightful still so yeah <laughs> excellent uh well <laughs> So I thought just to get us started, since we go way back, uh, I thought maybe we could get into the mind of a young James, maybe the oh, James God. who was working in the cellars of the breweries and wineries and in the front of house of those beer bars and wine bars. Mm-hmm. How about we talk a little bit about what made you think of the referent? Why spontaneous beers? Why New Jersey? We can start at any point you want, but maybe as a point of clarification, yeah, what is the appropriate nomenclature? Is it wild beer? Is it spontaneous beer? Is it lambic? Because I know this used yeah, to be contentious. They're all, right there, they're all they're all either very long winded or otherwise politically. Fraught. We've got a full hour, so let's, <laughs> yeah, let's um, expand on yeah. it. So I, you know, I like for now, and since we started spontaneously fermented beer, um, I understand all the abbreviations to just spontaneous beer or spawn or whatever you like. It's just a nice shorthand. Mm-hmm. Technically, it you know, since it the term applies to the fermentation and not really the beer, I think there's been some confusion by some uh, brewers and otherwise of just, you know, that that it means the other thing of that you uh, kind of wing it. Um, somebody had brought that up, but like a wild beer um a panel just, just uh, at a cbc just like read the the you know the wrong dictionary definition of spontaneous um <laughs> and it was like so these aren't even spontaneous it's like okay well that's not what we're talking about we're talking about they're the called kinda, improvisational you know, beers right <laughs> yeah exactly the kind of automatic uh natural uh the the letting happen of fermentation um wild beer certainly um still applies it's probably just the rectangle to the square of um spontaneously fermented beer in my mind um yeah we don't you know for ourselves yeah we we try to be specific but also try to you know talk about it however anybody will potentially understand it is at some point the goal um without dumbing it down too much of course um it's funny it's funny because if you know if there's conflict and understanding within the brewing industry where ostensibly people know the most i can't imagine getting that across (laughs) to consumers yeah yeah uh i was at a family reunion um in iowa this past summer and uh 
a kindly old man apparently follows us on Instagram and he's like, it, you know, it looks great. I don't know what you're, what you're talking about ever, but you know, <laughs> we'll live it all looks great. It's like, oh, thank you. Thank you all the same. Um, yeah, that's fine too. <laughs> Ask me any question you want, but also if you're somehow enjoying it, just as like washing over you, it's delightful. Yeah, it doesn't make a lick of sense, but man, no. does it look, it looks pretty. I mean, probably he said exactly that, you know, realistically, <laughs> I probably took the folksiness straight out of it, unfortunately, <laughs> was unable to convey it, trying to not, you know, caricature him too much. That's true. We um, should respect the middle of the country. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. So at times, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's okay. So I think that's a fair representation. So it's. When would you say your first, the first beer that really made an impression on you? Going back, let's start at the beginning, like we said. Oh God, um, like first beer, like at all, like. I would say like, let's narrow it down to a a spontaneous or even a wild beer, if if, if that was too far so, off. The yeah, map. yeah, yeah. In in college, when um, when like moving out of the apartment I had been in for the latter three years, um, got like a celebratory probably like an $18, 750 or something, which, you know, is not college people money. No. So we were, we were pretty, you know, this was like a, you know, and, and thanks for ourselves, patting ourselves on the back for, um, you know, putting paint in all the nail holes. If you put it in thick <laughs> enough, then they don't know and they won't charge you. Uh, anyway, Odell Deconstruction was that beer, um, which was, I think the first sort of wild beer that I had, um, I don't even recall what all it was. I mean, there were like multiple kind of wild yeast strains to it and that it was more kind of cidery than anything that I was used to. It was not like an overtly sour one. I think it was probably close to a kind of like Russian River Temptation-ish type of, type of beer, if, if my memory serves. But okay. that, was, um, that was one of those nice, yeah, early, bewildering, but, um, but enjoyable uh beer experiences for sure and just one of those ones where you're like i didn't know i didn't know beer could be like this um and we were already getting pretty deep into you know the various styles more commonly uh made by american brewers in the mid-aughts um but yeah those were starting to definitely gain a little bit of you know still very niche popularity and um yeah that one and then a couple maybe a year or two later i guess yeah no the next year time was compressed um sure. when you're young i suppose um yeah can't young goose kind of shortly thereafter um okay so getting it really which is the even end. more yeah even more that one was like like presented as an actual challenge i think um that you know that is some serious acidity and it's um even more complex and just yeah i've uh i, th I feel like i talk about that one a lot it's just being this kind of experience where you just kind of puzzle over especially the aroma of those beers um and you can just sit with your nose in a glass for like 45 minutes just trying to figure out what the hell's going on and that was that's just a totally totally different experience than um a, a more thoughtless beer 
not that it was thoughtless in its conception, but that you can be mindless about when you drink it, um, which is not at all a condemnation on those beers. God knows they have far more of their place in the world. Um, but there was something, yeah, just uh, a little more revelatory about about some of the yeah wild beer that I found myself marveling over. Well, that specific one, it, it's foreign in every capacity, right? It, it's imported. It's mm -hmm. sort of mysterious. There's not a whole lot of information on it. Even the even goose would be right. mysterious, right? What is that? Yeah. Right. Especially when American wild ales at the time were, I mean, like you said, it's probably a couple lab strains of Brett and some barrel aging, but yep. Yep. fairly, you know, fairly straightforward compared to so spontaneous beer, true spontaneous beer. Right. So as a young man trying this beer, where does your mind go to with your nose in the glass for 45 minutes? Are you puzzling out how they could have made this beer? Are you wondering, or are you more wondering what um, you're identifying in the smell, the aroma? I think both. I think I, I think I had done like, it was on draft at Navari Res in Portland, um, where we've hung out. Great place. Yeah. Wonderful place. Um, and I think I had done like a little bit of research. I was not like in, I, I didn't, I don't, I don't know that I knew about the, the hype surrounding Cantillon, but I, I knew that this was an opportunity to try some of these beers that I had kind of heard murmurings of that like, uh, you know, these production methods where you just kind of let it go. You just open it up open up to everything and kind of see what happens um is probably my you know initial naive conception of it that is honestly not too 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 far from the truth it just has <laughs> just a little less risky than that makes it sound um also much more risky when you build a business around it but yeah, certainly yeah but uh yeah, I so I was yeah production methods a little. Um, I was working in a brewery at the time, but like just on the canning line, the old you know just kind of foot in the door thing. Um, uh, it was not Allagash, so I was not you know um, <laughs> you know a part of their early cool ship days, which were probably going on at that exact time. Um, uh, yeah, part of that, part of just kind of trying to find a vocabulary if one exists and this is an ongoing struggle that i like pick up and leave off at times of just are these uh aromatic notes and flavors even worth comparing to other things or are they kind of fundamentally singular um does does language do these things justice are tasting notes uh worthwhile at all like for for things that have so many kind of I don't know. Uh, so that have that much nuance that, yeah, you can say apricot, but you don't really mean that. Things that are that kind of fermentation driven um, and get all these crazy kind of tertiary aspects. Um, I don't know. I think they defy easy, easy uh, grammar and vocabulary, which well, for anyone makes them all you, the more compelling. I think anyone who knows you or is familiar with your brewery knows that uh, you are erudite, to, to say the least. So I don't think you've ever had trouble uh, putting anything into words. But I get your point. I think there's there's a fine line, right, between 
identifying on a molecular level what is being uh, expressed by the yeast, right? Right. And then something, the actual tasting notes that you smell, which can be subjective, right? Yeah, and feels like um, could be kind of inherently reductive, not in the um, like winemaking, occasional beer making thing of, you know, um, the opposite of oxidative, but like it's not, you're, you couldn't possibly <clears throat> capture all of the, yeah, all the nuance that you're that you know your senses are delivering to your brain. You just know there's not like the appropriate words or that it doesn't fit the the neatest or completest um, categorization. And so, I don't know, it feels like sullying it a little bit to try to just kind of compartmentalize everything into like, it's like these three fruit flavors and oak. I don't yes. know. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you could see that in wine. And we'll, we'll get we'll get to wine because I would love to talk yeah. about Varen, and um, we will get to that. But I guess from what you're talking about, in the early days of Referin, when you started it, were there any breweries that were already doing all spontaneous? Um, when so when I when I thought of the idea, I think. Probably Degard was in process, but had not yet opened. So a single, a single brewery potentially, and probably along the same timeline. Yeah, they they opened. I think they opened like a couple years prior. So I assume. I mean, and we, yeah, I I took probably two years, like writing a business plan, getting money, looking all over, you know, central New Jersey for a nice place to land. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, at, at some point in that time. Um, Degard uh, out in Oregon opened up. Yeah, I had thought, you know, yeah, first, definitely first um, in America. Instead, we were second, and we're still now two of three. Um, Primitive in Colorado is the third. So it's safe to and say nobody you, were, you were treading new ground, and you're still leading that charge. We, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun. Uh, the wild beer world, uh, I don't know, again, maybe it's too early to get into this, but it's changed so drastically um, in the past, like basically since we opened in a little bit prior, um, because of the, the just the sheer enthusiasm um, that, well, sheer enthusiasm that on some of our parts, I don't know, took on a kind of more... Um, quixotic and obsessive um like we just got to do this and only this and for other people maybe more of oh i don't maybe just a little more opportunistic not that like we weren't also seeing an opportunity in in america of like well we love cantiana tree fontaine and can't get enough of it here um let's try to do the same thing um on our own but also but, upholding their own standards. I think that might be what sets it apart from just a purely opportunistic or, you know, in a more reductive way, money grab type of mentality where we respect their appellation of, of Lambic. We look to the people who pioneered it and we'll try to do justice to it, but in our own patently American way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm like, at a certain point, knowing that, knowing how different it's going to be from their beer um kind of no matter what you do um 
just by virtue of microbes, process, et cetera, by virtue of that when two breweries in Belgium, even in like the, you know, strict old timey delineations of the Piotenland, even when they're like, you know, five kilometers apart, they have totally different profiles, even when they try to do things the same way. You just know it's not, uh, it's not replication, it's not the goal. Um, but you also want to look to them because they're the strongest proof of concept, basically, for especially in my mind, long aging beer. Um, sure, the complexity up front, um, but also just the kind of the the beautiful things that happen to to those beers after 5, 10, 20 years in a bottle. Um, which, I, is, which is a yeah. little uh, probably where you're right now, you're probably starting to see... <laughs> those beers that are what seven plus years old now yeah the oldest ones yeah yep um pretty incredible right it it is yeah i would just um we got like a little bit of a late start on this brewing season i guess we just talked about when we opened but for whatever reason like i guess because we've started brewing in the spring of 2016 this is our ninth brewing season and that just feels insane to me wow i just i don't know yeah just uh, doesn't feel like nine years for sure. And it, it has not been nine full years, but, but coming up on it. Um, so yeah. actually, I mean, maybe that maybe that's where we should uh, redirect it back towards production a little bit, because I know that this is a, uh, a brewer to brewer podcast. So mm. why don't we talk about in the beginning? So you started the referend with a mobile cool ship, which is to say you did not brew the wart at the referend in New Jersey, in Pennington. Right. But instead you had partners who would make the wart for you to your specifications. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. So instead of investing in a brew house um, and especially uh, it's in that cute little bio at the top of the interview, but I didn't really um, come into this with a work production background or even too much of a home growing uh background um i was really just doing kind of fermentation cellars and packaging things so that was my wheelhouse more than anything and i knew i had to you know do my research on turbid mashing and everything for this very specific type of beer also knowing that like most of the rules for that are nearly the opposite of what uh, constitutes good technical brewing for most other styles you just want such very different um things out of your out of your work um but yeah so it, it felt additionally beneficial not just the, the money saving off the brew house but but that like hey I, you know it's not it's not my thing yet at all um so maybe best to uh to leave all that to people who are um already doing that professionally um granted different breweries needed a different degree of um working with on on you know making sure we were hitting temps and stuff on a these brew days are crazy i'm i'm actually in retrospect surprised that as many breweries agreed <laughs> to do this as they did at first i would get like a little bit offended of people you know kind of wanted nothing to do with it after i was like well you know there's no like risk of contamination the way this is all just like it goes out into the cool ship in the truck and you know it's it's just normal and i pay you and it's it's you know 
it's great but it's also like a you know it's like a 15 hour day and like fuel costs are exorbitant because you're boiling for four or five hours and and a lot you of these know. breweries that you're contracting at right there they're on four turn single infusion mashes yeah yeah like yeah. real production breweries where i'm sure that it must have been driven by the brewers themselves right this must have been such for a the novel most part, thing for them to yeah, do yeah there was a spectrum for sure um but you it had to be at least a little interest on the brewer's part um very rarely would people just like see dollar signs in their eyes from me showing up you know a couple times a brewing season and write them a check for the brew day i mean it's not nothing but like that's not that would not be the primary driver for for people um yeah and some yeah some brewers are just like this this sounds like fun and i'm not allowed to do it on my own so you know exactly so yeah sure why not it sounds um, like a great way to break up the monotony yeah for sure and, and then you know there were, there were skill, only a maybe. couple there were only a couple that wanted to do it especially there's only you know yeah one brewer that didn't have rakes that wanted to do it regularly um because <sighs> turban mash and uh and a doho are it's you know it's 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 a quite quite an exercise um yeah it's you gotta you gotta really you gotta want it so then you you did this for how many years did you use the mobile cool ship so that was through well what is that i don't know yeah i guess i was just speaking in terms of uh nine this is the ninth so i think through the sixth um basically we we at one point, before we even closed, not, you know, okay, so we moved to Pennsylvania. We'll jump ahead. I guess that was also in the bio. Um, around around season six, so I'm, I'm imagining your lease was running out and you wanted to right. be more permanent. Why the, because that's a, that's a long way from Pennington, so. Yeah, we were looking all over. We were looking at some places very close to Pennington. Uh, some in Jersey, we're looking at Stockton at a place. Uh Looked, you know, place a lot closer over the river, um, southeastern Pennsylvania. Had an offer in uh, a place in the Hudson Valley. Um, we were, we were just getting out of our, of our six-year uh, lease there. Um, like it was, our our lease was up. We hated our landlord. Um, mm -hmm. It had proven to be kind of probably too large a space for what we. Thought we eventually wanted to be doing, and and just the cost of leasing versus owning was um just going to make less and less sense. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say we, like like many uh, today, we probably wouldn't be in business right now had we stayed. Um, I just don't know. Yeah, don't know that we would have pulled that off, or would have had to pivot wildly. Sorry, what was that? I was saying it definitely does seem prescient now that it's borne out after for sure with yeah. COVID and and that was a big space. How how many square feet was that warehouse? It was thirteen thousand square feet. Yeah. And we 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 initially wanted the like ninety five hundred square foot unit next to it, and um, the landlord kind of uh, cajoled us into uh, into the bigger one with some like you know like not charging us for the extra rent for the first few years, but well guess what you know the the time goes by the beer takes its sweet sweet time as it does and um yeah all of a sudden you're paying on a very very large space and yeah so we 
at the in 2015 when we were signing that lease it seemed important for us like part of the reason ironically for being in so large a space is so that we wouldn't have to move so that we could grow into this uh this space as as yep. we would like to um and uh yeah then we probably sagely changed and now you're in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. Yes. You yes. are on the property of a, a former vineyard. Yep. Well, former winery, current. Yeah. Current, current vineyard. Current uh, yeah. that you purchased. I, I guess the, the sale yeah. was meant to be sort of a turnkey situation. It was. Yeah. So that was the thing is we had looked at dozens of properties, like even I probably in person um, over, over many years. Um, and then... This one was, yeah, just by far the most turnkey, uh, kind of in all respects. Um, yeah, because there was, you know, because our, our brewery operates so much as if you, you know, treat wort like it's wine. Um, so a winery operation with its floor drains and wastewater tank and three phase power and, you know, and, uh, and yeah, cellar cellar in a bank barn uh kind of half basement it just all it just all was oh man i yeah i don't know our eyes just just lit up um when we were seeing it for the first time because it was exactly what we've been looking for it's i mean it sounds ideal i think that's i think that's really the dream for people looking for a more pastoral setting not mm -hmm. having to go through zoning variances, not having to erect a new building, which is so capital intensive, all that equipment that right. you have to get into place, all the infrastructure. Um, I, I'm sure, I'm sure the second you saw it, you must've felt some stirrings. Yeah. Well, and just deep relief. Um, you know, the, the last, the last few places that we had like had offers in and accepted on, you know, between zoning or yeah, just the terms of like, you know, needing zoning approval before we could finalize, you know, the purchase was not always what any seller's looking for. Um, and even just you know, financing some of the scale of some of the places, um, the properties, much less the right renovations and getting, getting it to be an actual workable facility is, yeah, just enormously costly. And that was before we knew that building costs were going to probably go through the roof in that time frame we would have been looking at so and with the it was another lease. we we yeah we dodged i think multiple bullets to end up in this very very nice situation yeah well uh speaking of dodging bullets we're going to take a short break for a message and then we're going to come right back for more of this conversation with James Priest of the Refn Beer Blendery and hear more about his transition to Pennsylvania and becoming a brewer and blender. Brewers across the globe have leveraged the popularity of Osmantha scented beers. Now, First Tea is bringing that clean, natural flower to North America. Email info at firsttea.com, that's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A, to find out how to use this delicate flower in lagers, whip beers, and more. For more than a decade, the Beer Law Center has been dedicated to the craft beverage industry, meeting the legal needs of breweries, wineries, distilleries, and all manner of alcohol producers and sellers around the country. From company formation to federal and state licensing, trademarks, regulations, and compliance, or if you're buying or selling an alcohol business, the Beer Law Center should be your first call. The firm never charges for an initial consultation, and if they can't help you, 
they'll help you find someone that can. Have a legal question? Contact the Beer Law Center on social media at Beer Law Center and online at beerlawcenter.com. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, MMC's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCo.com to learn how Malt Europe can support your malting needs, or you can contact them at customer success at MaltEurope.com or call 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. Malt Europe, premium grains from field to flavor. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the advertisements. Uh, James, so where we left off, you were fortunate enough to get out of your lease in Pennington. You were doubly fortunate to find a more or less perfect property in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. Yep. Where what happened next? So I imagine you had to move your existing beer out of Pennington. Right. How so onerous was that? Very. I mean, I know some people have moved breweries that we're not the first or last to do it, but it, it is not a lot of fun. Um, I mean, in, in like retrospect, I wouldn't call it fun, but there's a kind of, um, I don't know, strategic challenge to it, especially for like this kind of beer where we just had to gradually phase out, you know, we had to slowly keep brewing in to the old space, but just enough of like shorter turnaround beers that we knew we would be blending. We basically, we didn't want to move any, any beer that wasn't packaged. Um, so that basically bottling all, through the entire, yeah, bottling through the entire barrel cellar, moving all the empty barrels over slowly well first yeah installing a brew house getting that going and then um brewing it into a brand new uh to us barrel cellar um so that we wouldn't have too great a lag time or anything between um between beers there obviously with like the back stock that we that we cashed away from uh from prior to, you know for the move um there's, you know, nobody, nobody knows the difference. And we have such kind of wild, <laughs> wildly different bottle conditioning times. Some things take three years and some things take, you know, two months. So it's, there's never three years any... from packaging. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We've got, some, you know, some that are, that are longer Then we, uh, I just hold it until I definitely need space back. And, um, so we have some that are, yeah, well, I'll probably release them in a couple months that, I think we got a 2017. Yeah, it was seven. It'll be like just shy of seven years old from Harvest uh, Creek that we that we bottled that we never released. That we bothered to move wow. to Pennsylvania with us. Um, and it, it like tastes pretty good. Now it's um, it's a, obviously a totally different beer than it would have been fresh, but this one just happened to not taste good fresh. Anyway, yeah, unpredictable stuff. Um, we just, we just never, never entirely know. So, so we wonder. Like, so something like THP, you yeah. can, you can outlast, right? You can just give it time in the bottle to analyze. In theory, we've had a couple things where I wonder about 
um, especially if you've done, if you've added anything to them. If it's just like, you know, a simple kind of, you know, Lambic style goose base type thing, it sh I, I think it should definitely clean up. There'd be nothing inhibiting it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm running into a, a cinnamon problem that we've used that successfully in the past, but I, I'm tempted to say it might be, and maybe it's a different type of cinnamon might be lightly fungicidal um hmm. and could have could have killed brett there's also yeah also cider sometimes we have trouble um i don't know if people are sulfiting it and lying to me uh but uh, we, almost certainly had, by the way yes that's yeah almost certainly um, yeah so we've had we've had some trouble with that as well um and some and some grape refermentations that have been messier longer than they ought to be um which yeah some people i think have attributed to like like kind of soil like what it was yan um the kind of the what is it i forget free amino content of things um but but i think is more likely um fan fan free yeah anyway um i think it's more likely just like a late sulfur dusting or 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 similar kind of fungicidal application too close to harvest um that like sure if you're pitching your own yeast at a healthy you know rate then it's not an issue for you but for us it, it is and it'll be kind of inhibitory for for a while it's designed to you know obliterate Britannomyces in particular which is yeah the cause and solution of thp so yeah so there's it, otherwise, in theory, yeah, in theory and in practice, it arises and it goes away. Um, it's definitely still, thankfully, the exception that it um, takes its sweet, sweet time. And that's in part why we hold on to those, is even if they don't turn around, I want to still be able to, like, check in on them and keep notes so we can kind of learn for the future of, you know, even if I can't get a farmer to tell me exactly what they did, um, we can learn a little bit of who to work with uh, and things to uh, beware. So have you seen any correlation there then with now that you're brewing your own wort, you have your own brew house now, you have total control over the wort composition, how it's brewed, mm -hmm. any sort of esoteric mash schedule that you have or long boils. <laughs> do you have a higher success rate now, do you find? Or is it pretty comparable to when you were getting it contract brewed? Well, we've we've definitely changed a, a lot of things. Like nothing, nothing is particularly fixed. And and one thing we we keep kind of upping our hopping rates a little bit, um, to try to you know keep acid. Keep you still want low pH, but just kind of get a nice nice palatable acidity. Um, is there a, so a the pH profile, that you target? Um, ideally it's tricky because ideally the lower, the better, as long as you're, I mean, within reason, you know, max, maxing out on the low end, probably at around three that we've had two, nine that somehow presented very well. Wow. Um, I would say in, in theory, you target something like a, you know, three, three or three, four, most of the, you know, great, um, beers of this style I've had have been in that range. But the, the if you have a low pH and you don't have any real volatility to it, and it's passing all of your tests of do I enjoy this? You know, is this 
sensorily delightful instead of like bracingly sour and kind of a struggle, then it, having a low pH is just nothing but great preservative. Um, so sure. it's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little tricky. So we, we've had beers at, at two nine that have been great, probably still blended those in with something to hit a beer at about, about three one. And that's the Berliner Mesa. So it's, you know, I don't know supposed your, to be a little more flagship sort of yeah beer. sort of yeah sort of became that inadvertently and i'm happy with that um yeah it's supposed to just be session champagne you know so that little, <laughs> little little session shower little session sour wine um is just kind of the goal there um but yeah it's yeah it's low low is low is good i think it's easy to get spooked by um but obviously just it's about how it tastes first. Do you ever, uh, are you measuring titratable acidity or is that I'm something not. that is a factor? That's more just up to your. I know I alluded to it. As if I, yeah, I alluded to it as if I did. Um, it's just kind of like if, if you can taste absolute in my mind, if you can taste absolutely no acetic acid, um, then, then you're winning. Um, like if you could do that with a low pH, everybody's having a good time. Um, well, not everybody, but everybody who's already predisposed to enjoy this type of beer. Um, Would you say that acetic acid is a flaw that is impossible to overcome through blending? No, no, certainly not. Um, you think it has it a place in blending? It could. It could. It's. I think it's a real risk. It has a real risky place in blending, and so you got to know that risk. And obviously, it depends on the type of beer that you're making. Like for for most spontaneous beer, I would I would even kind of say most pale wild beer. Though is Petrosage Pale Ale still a thing? That was pretty nice. It probably had some notable acetic. Anyway, it's not um, maybe some Flanders Reds that are out there still. Right, like you still you. I think I I want a tiny bit of that bite in those beers. Um, I think I think it can be probably especially if you have more residual sugar kind of a deeper malt aspect to it i think that that'll play better it can really just you know it's it can just be sharp and abrasive and not just not particularly nice i wouldn't say i wouldn't like call it a categorical flaw it's just got to kind of cohere um and it and it's tough to make it cohere um, it can be blended out, but it's, it's always that, that risk of, I don't mean like blended out of existence. I mean like blended back into a threshold level. Um, if, uh, and you find that it's stable at that level. If, I mean, if you're like, if it's right before packaging and you're using and you're, you know, doing some like CO2 purging, if you're working fairly kind of, uh, clean and keeping keeping additional oxygenation out of the equation um it shouldn't run rampant and and it should take a especially you know pending a a kind of hardy um bottle refermentation where you're carving to three four volumes at that point you've got this anaerobic environment that it's not going to the acetobacter the you know the thing causing all of your stresses and what's keeping you up at night should be kind of laying dormant at that point um maybe it's a problem for like when the cork fails and you know 10 20 years later 
instead of having like a nice lowly carb beer, maybe it starts turning turning uglier more than it would otherwise. But so essentially, I, yeah, you can. There there is a tolerance threshold, and with with proper packaging, it shouldn't present too much of a problem. However, it's just it's just very specific to the style of beer. Yeah, and you and we we court it at times. Like I'm also a, a lover of like a gentle amount of oxidation in these types of beers. But then you're talking about intentionally not topping up and leaving headspace in the barrels, which that's that's an increased risk you take with that. Um, it's 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 all a little too much swinging for the fences at times. Um, but then you try the you know the examples of that where it really works, and you just you don't want to do anything else. You know, it's uh, I have such an appreciation for what you're doing because these experiments bear out over so many years. It's not so simple. You know, you're taking a risk and, and trusting your judgment and then hoping that in two years it tastes all right. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's yeah. a real, that's a real test of your faith every time I imagine. It it is and and at times uh it'll just like make an ass of you for sure you know but i don't know still feels worth it i would say most of the time um yeah oh the one thing i was going to say differences uh there versus here that has only occurred to us like later than one would like like you know just this kind of past brewing season is the inadvertent or just inherent agitation that all of our work got sitting in an IBC tote coming back to the blendery that now that everything's on site, I'm struggling to try to like recreate by like awkwardly just maybe like, I mean, I could just put in an IBC tote and drive it around, but that's dumb. Um, instead, it's because yeah. after, because you would park the truck with the, with the lift gate open you yeah. would then pump it when it was sufficiently cooled from the cool ship into an IBC and right. then drive it back. Right. So that agitation, maybe over what, an hour drive on the highway? Yeah, yeah, up to two. But yeah, two usually hours. usually 45 to, to, yeah, 45 minutes to two hours. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, in terms of just like aerating wort and getting a, you know, kind of strong, a strong fermentation from that, it, it makes sense. Um, and we would always kind of mess around a little bit with like, do we go into the cool ship, you know, through a port? Do we give it as vigorous? Do we drop in from from four feet or like turn the pump way up and really kind of spray it around? Could you put we, an O2 we, stone in line out of the cool ship? We have never. No. Okay. It's, it's just, I mean, it's it's seeing so much oxygen otherwise um, from the cool shipping. But yeah, I hadn't, it, it uh, the additional beating up of the beer and in, 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 in transit hadn't uh, hadn't occurred to me as much as being probably a kind of integral uh, element of our brewing process those first several years. So to try to get continuity, it feels like even though nothing, yeah, it's different. It was always different wherever we were brewing, um, but trying to get trying to get some semblance of of continuity in the character. Um, and then how the fermentation will perform. So, you know, that, that's such a, a small process step 
that you wouldn't think about, right? It's it's just kind of invisible. It's just a necessity, right? You have to move it, bring it back yeah. to the blender. For then it to have maybe a meaningful impact on the final beers. Uh, yeah, I think. I, I just think when you're not when you're not pitching anything at, yeast wise, everything kind of matters like a little more, you know. It just inherently like that medium, the me, you know, the media that you're laying out for wild yeast is all is all you've got really whatever you made on the brew day and whatever the kind of weather and ambient environment and how you treated it um whatever whatever all those factors did is the beer that you get more or less um not to you know neglect barrels and all the things they'll do but those uh yeah i think those those early fermentation days are very formative for for the lifespan of the beer for sure so how does how much is that different for wine because i think it's just accepted that wine has tons of natural yeast present on the skins and that mm -hmm. you would imagine it's it's simpler to orchestrate a spontaneous fermentation of fruit is that a misunderstanding how similar is it for your wine project if you'd like to I, just briefly talk about it sure it's it's um it's tiny uh, in part because we did our little cold turkey conversion to the vineyard right when we got here uh, to all kind of organic and uh, non-Steiner uh, biodynamic, um, by which I mean we'll like use fun kind of uh, lactobacillus, well presumed lactobacillus from our Berliner Messe dregs um, and propagate those and pump those into the vineyard. Wow. ideally to divest ourselves eventually from the Bayer equivalents that kind of cost a, a lot of money. Um, so anyway, uh, that's on, yeah, the vineyard side, which of course is what matters a lot. Like I was talking about with late fungicidal applications, that's kind of a, a big part of most people's viticulture is killing off, uh, Unfortunately, a lot of the good with the bad, you're killing off, yes, powdery mildew, downy mildew, etc. Um, but you're also killing off all of the yeast, all, all the wild yeast populations in your vineyard that are would be the most kind of good and natural source for those fermentations. Um, so for us, yeah, we, we don't really treat them a whole lot differently. The, the wine project, they're in wine and the referend. Um they're technically like distinct licensed and legal entities and everything, but they, it's the same ethos of just, you know, just quit messing with it. Just, uh, just let the yeast do their thing. And yeah. in in the one case, right. With wine, you say you trust that the yeast is there because it's on the skins of the fruit. And with beer, it's that much more dramatic because you trust that it's, present in the air on the night that the wort's in the cool ship, um, which is, I just think that's a lot more fun. Like I like spontaneous fermentation of wine and cider. Um, I think it's, it's also very uh, delightful and yields similar degrees of just wonderful complexity you can't get. But philosophically, I think beer spontaneous fermentation is just like it, it's a little like nearly theological of just this whole kind of like unseen life 
in the air, in the wind that comes and uh, fulfills that apocryphal Ben Franklin quote of uh, guy, whatever the hell. Which one? There's make uh, us dozens. happy. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, I don't know what, the one on dish towels. God loves us and wants us to be happy. Is that the one? That's right. That and thing. I think that should be, I think that should resonate with all brewers because if you, you look at the history of this trade, I mean, it really started as a mystery. There was no understanding of the microbiology or fermentation. It's just, you know, a, a, a series of rituals. Right. And, and, per, and happened to be performed by the men of scripture. So, uh, I think the, you mentioned theology. I think there's an inextricable link there. Um, yeah, more and, than I'd like to belabor, but it's but it's there. Yeah, sure, sure, and maybe for the best that we uh, distance ourselves. But true, true. Uh, I think yeah, I think that's it's interesting that with all those projects going on, it's still beer that captivates you, and I think probably most of us can relate to that as someone who loves natural wine as well and minimal minimal intervention ciders. There is something special, and I think there is a really cherished place for spontaneous beer. Just the longevity, the complexity, the real distinct differences between producers. Uh, I can I can see why it's it's caught the attention and fascination obsession of of so many beer drinkers and enthusiasts. Absolutely, yeah. It just somehow stays interesting, where uh i'm i'm i become easily bored or want to move on to the next thing which admittedly with wine inadvertently and moving here we're kind of doing but it's 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 part and parcel of the same thing for sure absolutely and i you know i, I guess a sort of a, a final question for you it does seem to be that a lot of consumers they expect breweries to make everything you know, I, I think that there's a big pushback against breweries who try to specialize in one thing as, as though they should be providing everything. And I guess I would ask you, what beyond just philosophically keeps yeah. you interested in spontaneous beer? And how do you speak to a consumer who might ask you why you don't have a stout on the menu or why you aren't making hoppy beers? Well, I like my snarkier response that I've had but is also one of the real ones um and in part like though it's a little backward seeming but it's kind of why we started doing this is that there's ten thousand breweries doing the type of beers that they're talking about wanting and like i'm i'm it's a it's a there's a lot of them i don't i don't know what to tell you like you can go <laughs> find those beers that you seek and we started this to make even if other people are doing something similar it's not the same and it and it won't be and can't be um and so there i just didn't have a whole lot of interest in that i love drinking everybody else's style beers that they do well um and thankfully in pennsylvania we can at least serve some of those uh alongside our own beer so that we don't have to like turn away everyone who doesn't want to, you know, get their shit rocked by um, fun uh, complexity uh, for the first <laughs> time in their life. Um, but 
Do you have yeah, many people? That... I mean, with with where you are as a destination brewery, do you have many people who are just clueless who happen in and? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in part because it was a somewhat popular winery for so long, there were a lot of people in the area. They're on they're on like wine tours. They'll just like be driving by oh, and no. see it's a vineyard. They'll stop in <laughs> and like we have some of our wine by the glass here, and so they don't have to you know be wildly disappointed that way. Except that everybody wants just like free uh, wine tastings where they just get to, you know, just get to drink an ounce of everything for free. Um, but we would, yeah, obviously we were not doing that. Um, yeah, you have but, you, you have a few uh, 15 bricks Final Gravity wines for them, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, none, none to date. Um, <laughs> I could just imagine yeah. a hapless wine tourist, a little buzzed or anything like, man. I used to love this place. You really fucked this wine up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we did. There was a guy kind of like that um, who, yeah, basically stole from us, but it's fine. He it oh. just like ordered, ordered. well, I guess he just thought he was just ordering a, a, like a taste or something, and I poured him a glass, and he was like, no, nah, thanks, though, and just left, and I was like, I'm not hmm. going to, I'm not going to chase you down. <laughs> not going to explain but, how this business works, but. Yeah, exactly. Thankfully, that's, that was a one-off. Um, but also, I mean, it's not necessarily for people that are, uh, loving every aspect of being on just like a bachelorette wine tour or what have you. Um, but wine drinkers often like it, it, since, since our early Jersey days, if you had like a mixed group of people and you had some people who were like, I drink beer, I like, you know. I like porters and stouts and sometimes IPAs or whatever. And you had someone's like, I don't like beer. I like wine. Like a, a, a strong majority of the time that that avowed wine drinker prefers our beer to the avowed beer drinker who is certain they know all about beer, but have never. Oh, oh about beer. I did it. I named I named it in in C2. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the beer drinker, thinks they know all about beer. They're they're furious that um that that they didn't that they maybe they didn't know all about beer, and it would be far easier to just write off this new bewildering glass than um than to learn how to enjoy it. There's certainly yeah, certainly still those people, and there always will be. And there's you know nothing at all wrong with that. But to specialize, I don't know. It's yeah, whether it's uh, some of these low ABV breweries who Josh Bernstein just wrote this article, maybe, or like uh, yeah, Sacred Profane, yeah, all lager breweries, what have you, all wild breweries. It's it's um and the shrinking of choice is that the article you're talking about? I think so. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. just yeah, yeah. you know, shifting okay, away from the hundred tap craft breweries. Yeah. And going to, you know, maybe eight selections. Right. Or in the case of Meeting House, three. Or right. Baker Profane, I think, only does two. Yeah, they do two, but then they do, like, you know, you can get a shot of Allen's Coffee, Brandy, and you do the different different amounts of foam, black and tan. There's, there's still, like, somehow 12 beers on their menu from only having two beers. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's not, not a, yeah, certainly not a bad way to do it. Um, and according to Untapped, you've made 200 beers, uh, actually in excess of 200 beers. Yeah. Well, you know, we've but only presumably made, like, not on tap at one time. <laughs> right. There's that. 
Yeah, I think never more than like, I guess on our anniversary party, we sometimes have like 20 on tap. Which I would encourage everyone listening, if you can, uh, you know, unfortunately once a year, but an amazing party. It is. It's always, it's always the best. The people are the best and it's just, yeah, just always great. That farewell party we had in Pennington was, yeah, wow, a delight. That was a um, delight. Yeah. Um, oh. I've forgotten what we were talking about, but you also said that was the last question. So, well, I think, I mean, I, I think you said it best. It's just quit messing with it. Quit messing think, with it. I think, I, I mean, it's something that can resonate with everyone. I really do think so. There's, I, I think a lot of brewers could learn to a certain extent to accept the things that are out of their hands and embrace mm-hmm. them. And also, I think there's, there's so much virtue in creating a beer that you can look forward to in the future. And that has that longevity on the shelf and that will continue to mature. And that shares in so many ways uh, in the unique aspects of wine. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's any reason we shouldn't appreciate it in the same way that wine people appreciate their vintages. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's what we're lazily trying to preach to the world. I think you're doing a fantastic job, James. Thank I, you, Alex. Uh, it, was, it was so great to have you on tonight. Thanks, Thanks for so indulging for me and all my questions about your brewery and your blendery. Of course. I hope that, you know, I haven't heard yours yet, but I hope that because oh, I didn't ask sure you very it. many like, you know, it was it was not <laughs> as conversational as it ought to have been. But I guess that's the nature of this this podcast. It's just uh, I'll do that to the next person. Yes. Make sure to be as selfish as possible. That is the key, I think. I'll just yeah, I'll just dominate both. I'll just not <laughs> Set your zoom up uh, so you can look at yourself in the reflection and it will echo a little bit just to keep you on your toes. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, James, from the Referent Brewery in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. Please, everybody, if you're in the area, uh, it's so worth a, a trip out there to their vineyard, tap room, and blendery. James will be back on the next episode as the host, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. That'll air uh, in about two weeks, so make sure to tune in for that. And again, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow them on social media. And additionally, to support journalism in the beer space, please check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. And again, I am Alex Helms of Troon Brewing. You've been listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Have a fantastic week. I'll see you at the next one. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea invites you to explore the rich and versatile world of teas and botanicals, including Osmanthus flowers. Email info at firsttea.com, that's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A, for support in choosing the right botanicals and the optimal ways to use them. Ironheart Canning is the quality leader in mobile canning and much more. With a decade of packaging experience, Ironheart is your turnkey solution for all your canning needs. Are you looking for a unique can size or nitro dosing? Ironheart offers filling sizes from 6 ounce up to 19.2, dedicated equipment for mixed culture products, and nitro dosing capabilities for still beverages and beer. Looking to break into other beverage segments? Look no further. Ironheart also provides a robust network of co-packing solutions to get a variety of beverages in cans, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic alike. Ironheart Canning. You have the capability because Ironheart can do it for you. Visit them at ironheartcanning.com or email info at ironheartcanning.com. For more than a decade, the Beer Law Center has been dedicated to the craft beverage industry, meeting the legal needs of breweries, wineries, distilleries, and all manner of alcohol producers and sellers around the country. 
from company formation to federal and state licensing, trademarks, regulations, and compliance, or if you're buying or selling an alcohol business, the Beer Law Center should be your first call. The firm never charges for an initial consultation, and if they can't help you, they'll help you find someone that can. Have a legal question? Contact the Beer Law Center on social media at Beer Law Center and online at beerlawcenter.com. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, MMC's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCo.com to learn how Malt Europe can support your malting needs. Or you can contact them at customer success at MaltEurope.com or call 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. Malt Europe, premium grains from field to flavor. 